All right. Good morning. Thank you all for uh, making it here this morning. Um, if you're like me and uh, you got up and thought, oh, I need to clear my car off a little more than I thought. Let me tell you, you can make it here with a windshield that has this much of a hole of ice. I'm kidding. I didn't do that. Yeah, I did. Uh, this morning's sermon is from the book of John. Uh, the text is John 1. Uh, my name's Cole. I'm the youth pastor. I get to preach the first sermon of the year, so uh, congratulations. Um, so the book of John is an interesting book. Uh, it is the fourth gospel, and it's, it's not like any of the other gospels. It's very different. Uh, it was written really late. Uh, it potentially is the oldest book of the Bible we have. It's depending on how you order uh, Revelation and some of the, the later traditions as later books. But a, a lot of people think it's the oldest book we have, so it's the most kind of mature ideas going on in it, which is interesting. Um, I think the best way to figure out what is happening in John, though, is simply to read large chunks of it and to uh, read the beginning of the book to the end over and over and over. And so this morning, we're going to read the book of John from beginning to end, um, three times. Just kidding. <laughs> How many of you actually were like, what is happening right now? <laughs> um, so what I think we should do, is let's just look at the text and let's get started. And um, what I hope in this sermon is that there's going to be a level of this sermon that you, you might hear. It might make you uncomfortable or it might make you comfortable. I don't know exactly. But what I hope that happens is you kind of let your initial reactions settle in. And then um, pay attention to what I think, what I'm really trying to say about this sermon. And, and at the heart, I, I'm just going to tell you, I, this sermon is about repentance, which is a term that we, like repentance, what is repentance? Um, it's about repent, confession and repentance. That's kind of what the, the sermon is about. Um, way to start off the year with uh, sin, confession, repentance. But I think this is, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic. So let's, let's get at it. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? John 1, 1. Uh, already, we have John writing to us about the scope and the intent of this gospel. Those words, right? In the beginning, that is a, text, a textual clue as to what kind of story this is going to be. This is going to be some kind of retelling of the creation story. John is going to try and show that in and through Jesus comes a new creation, a new humanity. To the writer of John, creation is not just something that happens, but it is something that still happens. Verse 2, let's take a look. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him... Not one thing came into being what has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So John right away solidifies Jesus is not only being present at creation, but is through whom God created the world. The light, right? these nebulous terms, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Okay, so quick note here. You might be saying, uh, you know, Cole, John never actually mentions Jesus here. 
It's, it's probably implied, but how do we know he's talking about Jesus? If you ask that question, which I just planted in your head. Good question. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist, it's inferred. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, that enlightened, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. So, John, if you notice, it's like, he speaks very oddly compared to the rest of the Gospels. It's a very different Gospel. And John's doing something really weird here. And is pointing to a major theme throughout the book of John. Remember, this is one of the later books written. Therefore, the readers would probably be aware of Jesus. And kind of the stories and themes of Jesus. And be aware of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had his own big movement during this time. So John is writing poetically about Jesus. Because it would be obvious that this was about Jesus. And so John is saying, the word or wisdom, or Torah, was at creation, and the, world, and the world was made through this word, this Torah, this wisdom. And in that word is light, and the darkness cannot overcome it, and that light enlightens everyone. Okay, however, it seems John also wants us to know that the ability to recognize this light is an entirely different story. It's a whole different story. So interestingly, follow, follow, follow me here, following John's logic, if one does not recognize this light, which is in the world, the darkness is not overcome it, it's here, but if one does not recognize it, one might struggle to recognize oneself and the world around them, considering this, that this light enlightens everyone in the darkness. So I'll repeat that. If one cannot recognize the light, you will not know yourself or the world you find yourself in. Light, image, recognition, all seem to be huge themes that John is wanting to pull forward from the text. And somehow, all of this has something to do with new creation. It's a creation story. Because creation didn't just happen, it's still happening. In fact, these themes pop up again and again and again in the book. The recognition of Jesus. They did not recognize him. They didn't recognize him. And then look at this. Finally, John 20. It's like all of it is like right here. This is, this is kind of where the text leads. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Again, it's a creation story. Gardener. Okay. Oh, you see me winking? Online? Yeah, gardener. Okay. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. 
Jesus said to her, I love this, Mary. That's it. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. Light, image, recognition. Jesus resurrects from the dead. And Mary does not recognize him. In fact, it seems very important. Look at verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Jesus calls her woman. Then... Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. It is not until Jesus says her name that she is able to recognize Jesus and accurately in some ways recognize and see who Jesus is. And the fact that the Apostle John would be concerned, right, about image and recognition 50 to 70 years after the res- resurrection of Jesus, I think, this is, this is just me, so... Take that with what I'm the youth pastor in the middle of Kansas, so whatever. Um, after the resurrection of Jesus, I, I seriously think it probably has something to do with the fact that John was getting older and was concerned, or at least like felt responsible, for this community of Jesus followers that had been built up around him. And he was responsible for it. And I think that in the book of John, and I don't think I'm reading too much into this, I think this is exactly the kind of thing an aging leader does John is trying to give his community a way to be the church without him around, regardless of changing context and changing culture and changing times. How does the church continue to be the church amidst new and unforeseen challenges that challenge all the things that we think and believe? And I didn't consider this in my whole system of reality. And somehow, right, all of this has something to do with new creation. Because creation didn't just happen, it's still happening in Jesus, through Jesus. Light, image, recognition, new creation. Everybody with me? Okay, okay. So I came across a writer over uh, quarantine that, you know, I've heard his name a bunch, but I never really had... Um, actually listened to him or, um, I mean, seriously listened to him um, or read. I hadn't read anything about him other than, like, quotes. And um, I definitely didn't have any handlebars to kind of understand him. And so during quarantine, especially a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, I, I picked up two books, one by him and one by a person who gave me a sense of how to read him. Um, I picked up a book by uh, James Baldwin. And then I picked up a book by Eddie S. Glow Jr., who is a Baldwin scholar, a Christian, and a professor at Princeton, and who wrote a book about how fantastic James Baldwin is. Right? Um, so, you know, I started to go down a rabbit hole just learning about who Baldwin was and what he had to say. And as I centered my mind around Baldwin in this time, I realized that, you know, Malcolm X and, and, and Martin Luther King were on the ground speaking and marching and protesting, and there were way more than just them, but those are the two that often break through. But Baldwin was doing and is, is doing something, and I, I think, at least this is the case that, that um, Dr. Glode makes, 
is, is still the most poignant and electric writer on the black experience and how that maps with the myth of American life. And so I started to read and learn about his life and learn about and just, just listen to his perspective and thoughts. Baldwin was the oldest of nine children. He grew up in Harlem. His father, which you'll also see, is incredibly photogenic. I don't know. Like he, I don't know if these are posed photos, but he's like, I don't know. Anyways, all right. So he grew up in Harlem. His father was from the South and was a very strict Christian man who Baldwin said, uh, said this about his father. He never learned to bend. He could only be broken. And this is what killed him, in fact. As Baldwin worked and took care of, the nine, his, nine, uh, of the, his siblings uh, because his father struggled to keep a job because he couldn't play the game. And so Baldwin became a Pentecostal preacher at age 14 to help support the family. However, it was at this time um, and that his family trauma and the trauma of growing up in Harlem during the Great Depression began to manifest. And Baldwin said, I retreated into the New York Public Library. I just like went and hid in the library. He said in a PBS uh, biography on him, by the age 18, I had read every book in the library. Like, I don't know if that's true, but the fact that it might be true is wild. <laughs> Baldwin began to furiously write and read over the rest of his life. And Dr. Glode, Eddie Glode says that, seriously, Baldwin is, in his opinion, the true inheritor of the literary tradition of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it's not until now that white America is realizing that the tr this tradition was passed on to a black writer, which is just like, cool, it's cool. So in 1948, Baldwin had seen enough. He's like, I've I, I seen enough of how America was treating the black community and simultaneously what it was doing to him and his image of himself and to his nieces and nephews, especially his nieces and nephews. When you listen to him talk, his voice like, gets a lot more punchy during that, those moments. And he writes a lot about this. And so he left America. He's like, I'm out of here with $50 and moved to Paris and lived on the street. And while in France, Baldwin wrote essays and books, becoming a force in the French literary world and in the American black community. And it was not until the bus boycotts of 1955 that Baldwin was inspired to move back to the United States in, in 1957 and lend his support to Dr. King in the civil rights movement. That's interesting. Like he actually, he, left, he leaves and comes back. But, but, <clears throat> it was at Cambridge University that Baldwin who was already famous in Europe and in pockets around the U.S., it was here that America realized their former son was not going away. And while in Europe, a bunch of undergrads, this is just a cool thing, a bunch of undergrads in a kind of debate club organized a debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. These English kids wanted to debate this topic. Has the American dream come, up, come at the expense of the black American. And this is the question they wanted to debate. So these, these young you know, Cambridge undergrads sent out pamphlets to the student body and sent invitations to William F. Buckley, the leading conservative voice of the time, right? And supporter of, uh, of Barry Goldwater and lead editor of the National Review, right? This, he's, the, he's a force in the conservative world. And James Baldwin, this young writer in exile in France, writing about the racism in the United States. Famous in Europe, uh, Baldwin, and starting to be taken seriously in America. Shockingly, shockingly, 
both accept the invitation. It's kind of one of those things where you're like, I have this big idea, and then when it happens, you're like, oh no. Like, now what do I do? What do I do here? And when this happened, the debate club became a national event. TV cameras show up. Almost the entire student body shows up for this debate. In fact, check out how electric this event is, because we actually have the footage. It's, it's like living out in the interwebs somewhere. I sound, sound 80 years old. Uh, uh, living out on the internet. Uh, check out this, just the footage of this. This debate was held recently at the Cambridge Union, Cambridge University, England, and was recorded for use by NET. Well, here we are in the debating <laughs> hall of the Cambridge Union. Hundreds of undergraduates and myself waiting for what could prove one of the most exciting debates in the whole 150 years of the Union history. It really, I don't think I've ever seen the Union so well attended. There are undergraduates everywhere. They're on the benches, they're on the floor, they're in the galleries, and there are a lot more outside uh, clamoring to get in. It's amazing. Norman. Norman St. John, what a guy. Uh, so while at this debate, right, the, the order of the debate was uh, uh, this huge thing, right, <clears throat> Baldwin goes first, and Buckley finishes the night. And surprisingly, you know, Baldwin stands up, and he starts his opening remarks unpacking a phrase he uses a lot in his writing. And this is, and I, I you know, like this is, this is gonna, it's all going to come back together, so just hang with me. Uh, he says that everyone has a specific system of reality. This theme is central to Baldwin's work. Everyone has a specific system of reality of the world. When we recognize an image, we fit that image into a previous system of reality that has been given to us. Right? So Baldwin, at the beginning of the debate, unpacks his system of reality that he proposes is more honest, and he just goes after it here, more honest than the, the dominant American myth and system of reality. So let's watch this one clip. I have to speak as one of the people who've been most attacked by what we must now hear call the Western or the European system of reality. What white people in the world the white doctrine of white supremacy, I hate to say it here, comes from Europe. That's how it got to America. Beneath then, whatever one's reaction to this proposition is, has to be the question of whether or not civilizations can be considered as such equal, or whether one civilization has the right to overtake and subjugate and in fact to destroy another. Now, what happens when that happens? Leaving aside all the physical facts which one can quote, leaving aside rape or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalog of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already, what this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, uh, his father's authority over him. His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. And his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, 
And in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, <laughs> along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. The disaffection, the demoralization, and the gap between one person and another, only on the basis of the color of their skins, begins there and accelerates, accelerates throughout a whole lifetime. So that presently you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen. By the time you are 30, you have been through a certain kind of mill. And the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster. The policemen, the taxi drivers, the waiters, the landlady, the landlord, the banks, the insurance companies, the millions of details, 24 hours of every day, which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. It is not that. It is by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew. You are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap. But what is worse than that is that nothing you have done and as far as you can tell, nothing you can do will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end. So throughout his work, Baldwin seems to be quite fascinated <clears throat> by this idea of one's image and another's ability to recognize it. You can imagine why. He's always talking about what one sees when they see another person and why this is so important, not only for the subjugated, but it's so important for also the oppressor. He goes round and round trying to explain how it is that the, the dominant system of reality, the, 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 and, and the white system of reality, does not recognize black Ameri Americans as human beings. And at one point he says, I honestly, and he's actually talking about, he's, ta he's talking about liberals here, he says, I honestly don't know what you see when you look at me. You might see something you are attracted to, something you are repulsed by, something you want to use for your purposes. But I know one thing, he says, you don't see me. So at this point in his remarks at the debate, he switches his tone. And he begins to really answer the question that was proposed to him. And, and I want to watch this because it's, gonna, it's important, but uh, yeah, let's watch it. Now, we're speaking about expense. I suppose there are several ways to address oneself to some attempt to define what that word means here. 
Let me put it this way. That from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy, especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had, and do not still have indeed, and for so long, for many generations, cheap labor. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, that I picked the cotton, and I carried it to market, and I built the railroad, under someone else's whip for nothing, for nothing. The Southern oligarchy, which has until today so much power in Washington and therefore some power in the world, was created by my labor and my sweat and the violation of my women and the murder of my children. This, in the land of the free, and the home of the brave. And no one can challenge that statement. It is a matter of historical record. He's an electric, electric communicator. And the reason I find this, uh, the reason I show, showed this to you, and the reason I find Baldwin's comments so fascinating is because he is making the case that the American system of reality, the dominant system of reality, distorts the subjugated's image of himself, as he says. However, and you probably felt it as he was talking, America's system of reality has a hard time admitting to itself that what he just said is historically and factually true. And if it can't admit this basic and fundamental reality, it means America's system of reality is actually warping and distorting and damaging the ability of America to recognize itself and the world it finds itself in. And we love our myths and, and our slogans and our culture and all the things that make America so great, yet we can't seem to fully admit, I can't seem to fully admit that this is how we came to be. And we love our debate. I love my debate on policy and, and who deserves which pay for which job and but, but it's hard for me to admit, I'm sure it's hard for us to admit, this is actually how we got to this point. And, and I'm very serious about this. I think the Gospel of John is fundamentally aware of this problem, of image and recognition and how it eventually destroys a community. What if new creation is not about, like, magic? But what if new creation is about the painful and restorative practice over a lifetime, and I mean that, a lifetime of listening, of confessing, of repenting, and resurrecting. What if John knows that if the church will be the church without him around, if the church will continue to be good news to the world, it's going to have to not only know what to listen to, but who to listen to. What system of reality speaks the truth about the world we live in? 
Who do we listen to to hear the truth of who we are, and what we have done, and what we have left undone, as we say almost every single Sunday? Mary, a woman, right, a person at the bottom of the Israelite society hierarchy, hangs around the garden weeping after all the men see the empty tomb and they go back home. They're like, I'm out, see ya, I'm out of here. But she comes across, Jesus, Mary comes across the resurrected Messiah who she doesn't recognize. She thinks he's the gardener, someone with some responsibility or someone who's in charge of this place. And then Jesus, the vulnerable one, the prophet who the empire just murdered like a terrorist. Or how about Jesus, who as Matthew 25 tells us, wants to be identified with the sick, the hungry, the poor, the prisoner. The least of these is the language. Mary is speaking to the one who all life and power has been taken from him. Yet here he is. And it is only when the powerless Messiah says her name, says Mary, says who she is, it is only then she sees the truth of herself and the truth of who is standing in front of her. What if the story is not simply a story, but it's a story wrapped around a way of being? What if the story is communicating a posture, a way of interacting with the world? What if John knows if the most vulnerable amongst us... Let me repeat this. What if, what if John knows... If the most vulnerable amongst us do not call us a friend, we are not the church. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses we quote. It doesn't matter how much we deconstruct. It doesn't matter how enlightened we are on social issues. It doesn't matter what doctrines we believe or dogmas we regurgitate. If the marginalized do not know our names and speak to us as a friend, the dominant system of reality is still at work and it eats up everything. And it is warping our ability to recognize Jesus. This final clip is Baldwin's closing remarks. And if you go online and watch this, it's, it's actually a 40-minute, 30-minute talk. It's, it's electric. Um, but this final clip is his closing remarks. Earlier he says, I hate to be the prophet Jeremiah, but uh, if we don't tell the truth about what we have done, Baldwin says, if we don't tell the truth about what we have done, America is in trouble. This is in like the 60s. Uh, we will keep repeating the same sins, he says, over and over and over and over until we somehow wake up and admit what we have done. And if you don't think this is also true about the church, right, have fun reading Paul's epistles written to the churches located in wealthy cities because he was constantly trying to tell the powerful of the church to remember the poor, to bend and make space for the vulnerable. You wealthy who show up and eat all the good food, stop doing that. Wait for the, for the vulnerable to get there, he's saying. He's like, be hospitable, hospitable to the weak amongst you. And seriously, these dynamics, these power dynamics, have haunted the church, has haunted America for a long time. And this is what's so amazing. Baldwin then points to new creation. Watch this. If the American pretensions were based on more solid, a more honest assessment of life and of themselves, it would not mean for Negroes, when someone says urban renewal, that Negroes are simply going to be thrown out into the streets, which is what it does mean now. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. It is a terrible thing 
for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, until the moment comes, when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream, because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. Thank you. So if you've been listening to Tim speak, he says these little phrases over and over again. He'll say things like, we stay close to the marginalized. Or the line between good and evil runs straight through us. You've probably have heard these things. He'll say them over and over and over again. When I think about John and I think about this idea that, that the creation didn't just happen, that in Jesus it's still happening. When I think about how we who about how who we are and what we have done is best seen and understood by the most vulnerable amongst us. That the church is called to embrace and lift up the marginalized system of reality over and above, or at at minimum, equal to the dominant culture system of reality that always warps and distorts itself to protect the powerful and the privileged. I think about why it is these little mantras are so important for Redemption Church. And I kind of want to lift them up right now. I preached this sermon not to start off the year with a depressing tone, but instead to say, I actually think, and I just want to put my finger on this, this, and he's talking about and what's going on in, in, in America and in any community you find itself, or we find ourselves. I think this is the sin of our lives. And this refusal to tell the truth about our past, the refusal to listen to the witness of the marginalized and accept it as truth, This is the sin of our parents' lives, our grandparents' lives, and it will be the sin of our children's lives and children's children's lives if something doesn't change. And I know many of us, me included, want to be different and we want to change, but we feel stuck. I talk to so many people like about this, like, I I know these things, Cole, I know, but I feel stuck. I can't feel like I can't do anything because we want to make it right, but Stanley Harawas says something that is wildly profound. Harawas says, sometimes a wrong is so wrong, it's so horrific, it can't just be made right. We can only tell the truth about it over and over and over again. However, what I think the Gospel of John is trying to say is that this truth-telling this naming by the marginalized and this acceptance of their system of reality, telling the truth about that is the seed of new creation. This new creation has no place for the American myths and legends it uses to protect itself from itself. Right? I read a book by uh, Eddie Gloud, as I, I mentioned, who really gave me a sense of James Baldwin and gave me some handlebars on how to read him. And, and, and Eddie Glaude, is a, he's, a, he's a Christian, a brilliant thinker. He's a professor at Princeton, as I mentioned. And he's someone deeply shaped by James Baldwin. <clears throat> and one day, one day, 
And from here on out, you're going to see a, 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 a news program logo. And you're going to hear me say some things about some political stuff. If we just take that and fit that into our American political system, this is the problem. Please, please listen to this. Um, and one day, during the Trump presidency, he was invited on to an MSNBC news program to give his thoughts on the latest shooting of a black person in America. And the, the, the anchors of the news program, and they're they more liberal than everyone knows this, they framed the conversation in a way that was trying to get Dr. Gloud to support their view that Trump is horrible and terrible and his presidency is un-American, that we're better than this. This is the main idea they were trying to push across. Dr. Glout cuts through our like, American system of reality, our American political system of reality, and he recognizes what's happening and what they're trying to make him do, and he cuts through this news program trying to protect itself from itself. This is my last clip, I promise, but just watch him channel Baldwin and show that even though it was 50 years ago, Baldwin was right then and he's still right now. Take a look at this. You know, America's not unique in its sins hmm. as a country. We're not unique in our evils, to be honest with you. Um, I think where, we're, where we may be singular is our refusal to acknowledge them hmm. and the legends and myths we tell about our inherent, you know, goodness uh, to hide and cover and conceal so that we can maintain a kind of willful ignorance that protects our innocence. See, the thing is that when we, the Tea Party was happening, we used people were we were saying pundits. Oh, it's just about economic populism. <laughs> it's not about race. <clears throat> when people knew, people knew. Social scientists were already writing that what was driving the Tea Party were anxieties about economic demographic anxiety. shifts, that the country was changing, that they were seeing these racially ambiguous babies on, on Cheerios commercials, that the country wasn't quite feeling like it was a white nation anymore, and people were screaming from the top of their lungs. Yo, this is not just simply economic populism. This is the un ugly underbelly of the country. See, the thing is, is this, and I'll say this, and I'll take the hit on it. There are communities that have had to bear the brunt of America confronting, white Americans confronting the danger of their innocence. And it happens every generation. So somehow we have to kind of, oh my God, is this who we are? And just again, another, here's another generation of babies. Think about it. A two-year-old had his bro bones broken by two parents sh trying to shield him from being killed. A woman who has been married to this man for as long as I've been on the planet almost lost her, lost her husband. For what? And so what we know is that the country has been playing politics for a long time on this hatred. We know this. So it's easy for us to place it all on Donald Trump's shoulders. It's easy for us to place Pittsburgh on his shoulders. It's easy for me to place Charlottesville on his shoulders. It's easy for us to place El Paso on his shoulders. This is us. And if we're going to get past this, we can't blame it on him. He's a manifestation of the ugliness that's in us. I've had the privilege of growing up in a tradition that didn't believe in the myths and the legends because we had to bear the brunt of them. Either we're going to change, Nicole, or we're going to do this again and again, and babies are going to have to grow up 
without mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, friends, while we're trying to convince white folk to finally leave behind a history that will maybe, maybe, or embrace a history that might set them free from being white. Finally. Finally. What else? Lord, help us. Lord, help us. The vulnerable Jesus says Mary's name. Mary hears her name, turns around, turns around, repents, and says, Rabboni. We have a lot of students in our youth group who come from other churches, and they often find redemption to be fresh water for them. And uh, I, I don't know what was going on at these other churches, but something about our youth community tends to be welcoming and loving to them. And I hear the, the conversation sometimes as they, as they describe our church to other people. And they will say things like, well, redemption is different. You know, it helps, it helps the homeless. And they have a lot of programs for the community. And they care for the marginalized. And, and, and honestly, this isn't just youth. I hear it a lot of people who are attracted to redemption for this very reason. And sometimes when I'm, I'm feeling kind of cantankerous, I, I will just kind of butt into the conversation and say, what are their names? And the students or adults will look at me and be like, what? And I'll just say, like, what are their names? The homeless folks in the church, what are their names? Do, do they know your name? And see, what I love about Redemption Church, what I love about this place, it's not that we're, we think we're right about any issue. It's that we change our minds, or at least we want to. We own our mistakes. I mean, at least we want to. I mean, we say every week, forgive us for what we have done and what we have left undone. This, this confession is in our DNA. And my prayer this morning is that we come to see there is a dominant system of reality that is working to warp your ability, my ability. It's working to warp this sermon to, it, to recognize Jesus and where the voice of Jesus comes from. And so I, I pray, may we hear the marginalized and vulnerable Jesus say our name. May we turn, may we repent and speak the truth. When the Baldwin-Buckley debate was over, the audience voted, by the way. Uh, Baldwin won 544 to 164. I would encourage you to watch it online. Let's pray. Father, it is a new year. God, it is a new year, and we start the year where we um, start as Christians, we confess. When, and we hope to repent. Father, we know uh, that... Dominant systems of reality uh, warp not only the, the image, the ability for the, the oppressed to recognize themselves, but it also warps us. It warps those who ha have more power and privilege. It distorts our reality. And Father, we need, we need uh, your help. Help us to continue to create spaces for the marginalized to be in and amongst us, to not, to not remove them, <laughs> and to create space to listen, for us to know their names and for them to know our names, for them to speak our name, to tell us who we are and how, how we are functioning in this space and in this world. Father, we need you to speak to us, to speak our name, 
over and over again. And in a new year, we pray that you would speak to us, that we would turn, we would confess and repent in hopes of new creation, something new and fresh to break in where we need each other. So I pray, as we always do, that you would bind our hearts together as a church, that you would teach us to love each other for your sake. Amen.